Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are and whatever you are doing. Matthew Grant here, CEO of Instec, and a little bit of a midweek special here. Now, as climate gets worse, insurance plays a more important role in helping people recover from disasters. Yet, many of the most exposed people don't buy the coverage they need, and that global protection gap continues to widen. So today, Alice Medley and Henry Gale from our research team, both respectively responsible for our climate and our parametric newsletter, are interviewing Karen Inkowski, who is Associate Vice President for Economics and Policy and the Environmental Defence Fund. Carolyn has written a book on understanding disaster insurance, new tools for a more resilient future. So for your midweek special, we have a review and interview with uh, Carolyn, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy a little preliminary insight into the book itself. That's pretty much it for me today. You can find out everything we're up to www.instec.co. Carolyn, it's great to have you join Henry and I today all the way from Philadelphia. Thanks so much for having me. So you have a really interesting background, having worked on climate resilience strategies, developing inclusive models for insurance, and you've also done lots of research into climate risk management. But by way of introduction, could you talk a bit more about your background and your current role at the Environmental Defence Fund? Yeah, sure. I just joined EDF last August, and I'm located within the economic research team at EDF. One of the things that differentiates us is that we try to base all of our policy in sound science and sound economics. So I'm part of the sort of research support team on the econ side. Before joining EDF, I was the executive director at the Wharton Risk Center, which is a research center that was associated with the business school at the University of Pennsylvania. And my work has long focused on issues of risk management and particularly climate risk management. Disaster insurance markets have always been a core part of that, focused on the role of risk transfer, its role in adaptation, but also what insurers can be doing to support decarbonization as well. And another focus of mine has always been on where the public and the private sector meet. And in disaster insurance, there's a lot of places they meet. It's an area that has a lot of public sector programs and intervention, which I'm sure we'll get to talking about today. You've used all this experience and research recently to write a book called Understanding Disaster Insurance, New Tools for a More Resilient Future. For those who haven't read it yet, what is it about and why have you written it? The book summarizes a lot of the thinking I've been doing the last several years about disaster insurance. I was seeing that particularly as climate extremes worsen, there's been a growing interest in insurance, both the important role that it plays in adaptation to these types of disaster events and the impact of climate on the insurance market. So in the U.S. here, there's been concern about insurers pulling out of certain markets, about increasing prices, creating challenges for consumers. So all of this was leading to more discussions on how policymakers and regulators and other stakeholders should engage in the insurance market, in sort of insurance-adjacent activities, and also leading to lots of discussion about how we can innovate on insurance to better meet the needs that people are facing as the climate changes, to provide better financial protection in an increasingly risky world. And then also how insurance can kind of go beyond just its traditional role in recovery and really be a positive contributor to solving some of our most pressing global, social, and environmental problems. So all these conversations were emerging, but I realized that a lot of 
that people kind of new to these conversations didn't fully understand the fundamentals of insurance or disaster insurance in particular, because it's a bit of a different beast. So the book tries to do three things. So the first is to really set the stage to provide a 101 on insurance, its role in the economy, to explain the rise in disaster risk we're seeing, how insurance helps manage that risk and financially protect people and households and businesses, but also highlight where it's falling short right now and really maybe not meeting all needs to identify those areas of reform. Then the second middle part of the book is a bit of a primer for those unfamiliar with insurance concepts. So it gets into things like the structure of the market and market players, the role of regulation, some of these public sector programs, also things like how catastrophe models are used in pricing, the related world of transferring risk not to an insurance company, but into the financial market through things like catastrophe bonds and these more educational chapters. They're there for people who really needed that kind of tutorial in order to better engage, whether it's a policymaker or a student. And then the third section is, you know, what I think of as the most exciting part of the book, which is all about the innovations I've been seeing in how we can make insurance work better and solve problems. So I talk about how it can better actually serve disaster recovery, its primary goal, how to make insurance more inclusive and available to those not currently served by the market. So that's a a big focus on lower income households, how to better link insurance to actually lowering our risks and climate adaptation. And then finally, the role of insurance in a place that you might not necessarily think of it, but in conservation and restoration and creating a nature positive world and supporting biodiversity. So Great. And one of the things I really liked about the book, Carolyn, was on reflecting on understanding disaster insurance, an important part of understanding it is knowing what insurance does do and what it doesn't do and where there are sort of things that are linked to insurance that reduce your risk or preparing for the different pebbles is a really important part of that. And one part that stood out was when you talked about even though you think about disasters all the time and you had a disaster come to your house that you weren't prepared for. Could you tell us a little bit about that story? So this was several years ago now before we moved to Philly and we live somewhere that was not infrequently hit by power outages and all sorts of storms. And our house was fully electric. So we should have you know, been aware that this might be a problem. And yeah, I think about disasters all the time, but we'd failed to purchase a generator And then we experienced a blizzard with it, trapped everyone in their homes. It took a long time to clear the snow and the power was out. My older son was just a toddler and we were now trapped in a house without any heat in the middle of a snowstorm, which was not obviously ideal. But, you know, they say that in a disaster, your neighbors are often first responders. And that's really true. And we were very lucky to have an incredibly kind and very prepared next door neighbor that had a fantastic generator. And we ran extension cords from their house to us over many feet of snow to run an electric heater to keep us warm and our son warm in just this one room until the power finally came back on. But I think that speaks to, right, as you were sort of mentioning, a lot of these behavioral challenges with disasters. We are you know, overly optimistic. We think they're not going to happen to us. We don't like to think about bad things happening. And even when I do think about bad things happening, it's really hard to get preparedness to move up on our priority list of things to do. It's a really interesting point you make there about the neighbor being the first responder, because it's a good thing that they were prepared. But in many cases, especially if it's something like a flood or an earthquake that affects everyone in the community, it's very difficult for neighbors to help out. And actually, if you've only got a immediate community to look to it's very difficult to get that support from people so how can we encourage people to be better prepared for 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 disasters like this yeah that's a really important question and lots of people are 
unprepared and maybe haven't thought a lot about larger measures that would reduce risk. And I think while there's a lot of good work by many groups, by government to help push better risk awareness and investment in preparedness measures, I think it's always going to be an uphill battle to get people to think about these things when the sun is shining, when it's a nice day, when it seems far off and not as pressing as things that have to get done by tomorrow. But I do think that there are two places where we can have a lot of leverage. So the first is when people are moving into a new home, because that's a time when people are making a large investment. They're thinking long longer term. And it's a really important time to have them understand the risk so that they're not moving into a place that's incredibly risky, that they're unprepared for. And it's also a time when they're thinking about the structure of homes and maybe changes need to be made. And so it's a time to introduce a conversation about mitigation measures to your property that can help lower risk. And it's also a time when people are having insurance conversations because you need to get your homeowner's policy if you're taking out a loan and so forth. So it's also a time to be talking about financial management of disaster. So I think that's a key place. And we're not yet sort of doing the best job of that. There need to be more what I like to think of as decision helpers. So making sure they get all the best information they need to make smart decisions for themselves. And then the second place I think we can have leverage with preparedness and risk reduction is and this is a little bit unfortunate, but if we're not prepared for the disaster, then there's a lot of rebuilding and so we can use that rebuilding though as an opportunity for the next one, right? And to build back stronger and that might mean to build back very differently or in different locations. But right now, it's really hard to do that well, too, for a couple of reasons. The first one is financing. So if it costs more money to build back stronger, that money needs to come from somewhere. And so I think insurance has a role in helping finance stronger recoveries, but also so does the public sector. But there's a lot of challenges with public sector dollars and also insurance dollars sometimes in terms of not just timing of when that arrives and the amount, but also there can be restrictions in place on how those dollars use that might be there for very important reasons, like trying to reduce fraud, but that actually prevent using those dollars for serious resilience investment. So we need to have some reform on both the sort of public sector and private sector dollars post-disaster. But then also in the aftermath of a disaster, you know, that's a time of very high stress and anxiety for people. And it's not a time they can really be thinking carefully about doing things differently. And they just want things to go back to normal. And so we can't expect people in that moment to take on the sort of research and visioning about what to do differently. And so they need support there. And so I think that can be a partnership between insurers, public sector, lots of nonprofits, but we need to really deliver to people what they need to do, what the priorities are, and down to the level of how do they find someone they can trust to do the work and charge a fair price and that that level of detail. So I guess the bottom line is like greater consumer support all around. <laughs> yeah, and definitely after disaster, a lot of people are finding themselves out of pockets. So they're probably not in the mood to build back even stronger or invest more or buy more insurance. Insurance is a really important part of being prepared for disasters. A lot of the examples you talk about in your book are from different parts of the US that are highly exposed to hurricanes or earthquakes or floods. But people don't tend to buy disaster insurance even when they're in those most exposed areas. So, I mean, how do you explain that and what can be done to tackle that? 
Yeah, exactly. There is what's referred to as a large disaster insurance protection gap, which is just to say people exposed to disasters who don't have sufficient disaster insurance coverage, or globally, it's often thought about as the difference between sort of the economic damages from a disaster and the share of those damages that are insured. And surprisingly, that gap can be very large, even in places like the US with very well-developed insurance markets otherwise. And I think there's a number of of contributing factors, which means there's no silver bullet solution, but it can be lack of awareness of the risk, particularly in some climate hazards where the risk is changing, lack of understanding of insurance and the role it plays in financial risk management. I also think we can't discount the fact that insurance is just no fun to buy. Nobody wants to buy something that they hope they're never going to use. And so it's just difficult to motivate insurance purchases. And that's true not just for disaster insurance. That's like across all lines of insurance, right? Unfortunately, lots of times people just don't buy it unless they're really forced to. You know, the biggest thing which we might talk a little bit more about is affordability and disaster insurance can just be expensive. And sometimes people just simply don't have the funds to pay for it. So I guess on the one hand, we have the fact that insurance is available, but lots of people aren't buying it. But there are some disasters that insurers may not want to offer cover for because the risk is too big. How can a risk be too big for insurers to cover? So insurance relies on great mathematical laws that when you pool independent risk together, right, the loss becomes more predictable and extremes become less likely. And so that's maybe intuitive if you think about something like auto insurance. Everybody pays a premium every year. Every year, some people get into a car crash, but like not everyone. And so those premiums can pay those claims. And then next year, it's different people. But auto claims year to year are fairly stable. And the money taken in in any given year is very close to what the insurance company needs to pay out. So it's, it's more predictable. But disasters are really different, right? You have these very quiet years. And then as we talked about at the beginning, right, disasters are times when all your neighbors are impacted too. So there's huge amounts of claim payments. And so then you see very, very severe losses. And so in order to not go bankrupt, insurers have to have access to capital to pay all those claims. And there's a number of ways they do that, but none of them are free. And it makes disaster insurance just more expensive and harder to provide than other types of insurance. I think a really nice example comes from California. The actuarial consulting firm Milliman did this nice analysis that showed that the 2017 and 2018 wildfire seasons in California lost homeowners insurers in the state more than twice their cumulative profits for the prior three decades. And that's just unsustainable for a private market. And so that's the real challenge with disasters is this they can really threaten the solvency of insurance companies. And so in response to that, being sort of just a fundamentally difficult thing to ensure, we see the public sector come in with a number of interventions. In California, that happens to be something called their FAIR plan, which provides wildfire insurance for households who can't find it or can't find affordable coverage in the private market. But we see public sector programs like this all designed a little bit differently, but for other perils across the US and in other countries around the world as well. Another example of a public sector initiative is the NFIP, or National Flood Insurance Programme in the US. For those who aren't familiar with it, Carolyn, can you talk a bit about the programme? This is one of the bigger examples of these types of public sector programs we've been talking about. So for more than 50 years, 
flood insurance has been provided in the United States through this public sector program that's housed in FEMA or our Federal Emergency Management Agency in the federal government. Um, It's designed as a partnership with local communities. So communities voluntarily opt into the program. And when they do that, they have to adopt some minimum floodplain management regulations. They're essentially building codes for new development in in flood-prone areas. And then in exchange, all their residents become eligible to purchase a flood insurance policy through this program. One of the original goals of the program was to have households rely on insurance as their vehicle for financial recovery after a disaster and not disaster aid from the government. But for that to work, people actually have to have the insurance and be insured. And there have long been political tensions in the program around the pricing of these policies, as you can imagine, and sort of the tension on the one hand of pricing the risk accurately on not incentivizing development in places where the flood risk is so high, it might be uneconomic to really have a lot of economic activity, but also keeping it affordable so that everyone can have the necessary financial protection that insurance provides. And that tension continues to today. We've seen just last year, the NFIP did a bit of an overhaul of the way they priced policies, something referred to here as risk rating 2.0. And that was, on the one hand, a really important modernization because it brought modern tools of risk assessment and pricing to the flood insurance program, which was in some ways still using approaches that the industry had moved on from decades ago. So it was an important modernization. But it also does make the price more reflective of the risk at an individual property level. And in those places where the risk is high and the price is high, we see that people will often just drop coverage. And unfortunately, that's a really poor outcome for everyone. It's really hard to recover financially from a disaster without insurance. So a different way that some countries outside of the US are looking at their disaster insurance programs is the so-called solidarity approach, where premiums are not differentiated by the risk level of individual properties. But in your book, you note how this leads to no incentives for risk reduction through pricing. Have you seen any initiatives that strike a good balance between ensuring affordability for insurance, but also still encouraging risk mitigation? And it's an important question. Those solidarity models that you refer to have a couple of nice features, which is that they tend to require all natural disasters be included in your standard property policy or homeowner's policy which is really nice for the consumer because then you have full financial protection against these disasters, which is not the case in the U.S. And without also the consumer having to buy additional products and do a lot of additional research and understanding. But of course, as we were talking about the difficulty in insuring them, it does open up the companies to risk of going bankrupt when a severe disaster hits. So those types of programs tend to couple that mandate that disasters be covered for everyone with a sort of federal backstop or reinsurance to protect the insurance company against insolvency. And I like those models actually a lot in terms of the benefits that they provide for consumers. But you're exactly right that they do tend to not provide as much financial incentive for investments in risk reduction, which is, of course, really important. So to do that, you really have to have them be tightly coupled to government regulation, things like building codes, land use, and and funding for mitigation. I think there's a couple other ways to also think about hitting this balance. One is to only target price reductions at the household's or the microenterprises or whatever that really need them. And so that's been a conversation that's been going on for years in the U.S., but we haven't actually seen any policy movement on it. But the idea is that you could adopt some sort of means-tested assistance program where there would be government assistance for low-income households with the cost of flood or other disaster insurance, and that 
other people who have enough disposable income can pay the policy themselves. There's also less concern about perverse risk incentives when you're talking about lower income households because they're often in risky areas, not because of the responding to poor incentives, but they don't even have the financial resources to move to safety even if they'd want to. The second one is, as we were talking about, just tightly coupling risk reduction regulations and government interventions around mitigation, disaster mitigation to insurance. And I think it's worth stressing that insurance and risk reduction really need to be seen as complements. When you lower risk, you make the insurance easier to provide and you make it cheaper. We often see that public sector insurance programs are the ones, not the private sector, that are actually doing more on risk reduction. They're actually financially supporting risk reduction or helping their consumers navigate that. So so you say public sector insurance programs are better at supporting risk reduction. Is that because the private sector could be doing more? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things there. So one is that the public sector insurance programs often have dual mandates and risk reduction is often part of that. So that's one thing. But they're also better able to capture the financial benefits of investing in risk reduction. For example, if you look at the North Carolina wind pool here, it's a state level program to provide wind coverage in areas at high risk of hurricane. Or if you look at the California Earthquake Authority, again, a state level program around earthquakes, they both offer grants to their policyholders to either, in the case of wind, it's fortify your roof, which is building a hurricane resistant roof, or something called brace and bolt, which is helping secure your home against earthquake. And they're able to then and see the savings in terms of lower claims over time and also reduced reinsurance costs. When they target those investments at the riskiest properties in their portfolio, they then can have cheaper or need less reinsurance. And I don't know of any models where the private sector has been able to do that, to offer grants or financial support to policyholders to invest in risk reduction. I think one of the challenges is insurers being worried that if they provide a grant to, say, fortify your roof you might then switch insurance companies. And so they're not going to get the financial benefits in terms of lower claims of having paid that for you. So I think there's some institutional challenges that need to be worked out to have the private sector engage more. But but if we could find those institutional models, it would be much more impactful, right? It would scale much more rapidly if the private sector could do that type of work as well. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective. And I think a lot of people listening will be from the private insurance sector. So it'd be very interesting to hear how you think insurance can be done differently. This is a key theme of your book. You talk about parametric insurance as one of the themes that's also big on our podcast. I mean, you mentioned Raincoat, the company founded by Jonathan Gonzalez, and he actually told his story about his experience from Hurricane Maria on our podcast about a year ago. But could you tell us, Carolyn, from Raincoat's example or from another example, how does parametric insurance work on a sort of household level? And what potential does it have in a developed economy like the U.S.? Yeah, it's a great question. And I will also recommend that episode to your listeners. It was a good one. So the idea of parametric microinsurance really arose in developing countries where there wasn't insurance available to a lot of lower income households, small landholders that still needed that financial protection against the financial shock that a disaster is. So to unpack a little bit what it is, let's start with parametrics. The idea of parametric insurance is that it pays based on a set measure of the hazard itself. So it pays a set amount when wind speed exceeds some threshold, for example, which is quite different from most types of insurance, where instead you get paid the amount of the damage. And that often requires like an actual person, a loss adjuster showing up at your house and looking at the damage and figuring out how much it's going to cost to fix it. The 
benefits of parametric insurance are one that it's incredibly fast. That loss adjustment process can take a really long time, particularly in a big disaster when there might not be lots of loss adjusters available and can often lead to negotiating or arguing with your insurance company about whether that assessment was right. Whereas parametric dollars are paid within days typically. And those dollars are also very flexible. You can use them for any of your immediate needs. Now, I want to say parametrics can't solve everything, right? And there are times when you very much need your indemnity policy, like as a standard homeowner's policy, you can't switch that really to a parametric and have the financial protection you need. But the fact that they are fast and flexible does open them up to meeting other important post-disaster financial needs. And one of those has been with these micro-insurance policies. And the idea of micro-insurance is that it's a lower coverage, a lower premium payment designed for lower income individuals or households who don't need as much. And it has to be parametric because otherwise the transaction costs of the claims processing, like the economics of it just wouldn't work if you had to loss adjust these policies. And so these have been used now in many countries around the world, but they had not come to the U.S. market until Puerto Rico a couple of years ago adopted the first enabling regulations. And Ringo was the first, if not one of the first firms to offer these policies in Puerto Rico. And they've now paid out after the last hurricane. And they provide this really important you know, immediate financial assistance when people need dollars the most. And we've seen in some of our research that that's a really important gap because lots of other types of dollars for recovery from disasters can take weeks or months or even, I'm not kidding, years in some federal assistance programs to get to households. And yet households need dollars on day one after the disaster, right? And so these types of parametric policies can really fill that need well. We've really enjoyed following the parametric insurance market through our regular reports and newsletters, and especially in the US, seeing Raincoat and other companies, whether it's hurricane or earthquake or even things like tornado coverage for homeowners. It's quite a compelling proposition, especially in in conjunction with a homeowner's policy, to say there's going to be a parametric trigger that will mean you get immediate funding to cover some of those quick costs. But parametric it hasn't completely taken off yet. And actually, most US consumers probably won't even have considered a parametric policy before and won't be aware of it. So why do you think, you know, given the potential of it, it's not quite there yet? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there's a couple things. One is a need to engage much more deeply with the ultimate clients about what their financial needs are to make sure they're being met. And how to then design the product to help those specific populations. So, you know, the conversation with Raincoat is one around microinsurance and Puerto Rico has regulations on cost and stuff to really target it at households that couldn't afford full policies and yet needed financial protection. I've seen some business models around parametrics that I think might sort of miss (laughs) identifying a clear need because, for example, if they're too expensive, then they're going to be targeted at more upper-income households. But upper-income households don't need that fast cash. They have liquid savings to cover it. So this is not something they need to purchase. It's not cost-effective for them to transfer that risk. So the folks that really need that, um, you have to get the cost low or you have to partner with philanthropy or nonprofits or the public sector to help cost share with the low-income households. In other types of needs, though, you know, you can also identify other places where parametrics could play a role. And I think that's in getting at non-property damages. And so things like having to pay for additional living or renters who might not face, you know, they're not going to have to pay for property damages to a home since they rent, but they're often facing higher rents after a disaster. And so you could think about 
how you could design a parametric product to help better meet these needs, but it requires that kind of collaboration with folks who understand those needs. And then the second point I want to say on it is also more support from regulators. Parametric has been approved, as you noted, in a sort of case-by-case basis in several U.S. states, but there's not a sort of strong regulatory framework around parametric in any state with the exception of this micro-insurance framework in Puerto Rico. And I think the private sector needs signals that if they innovate and work on these products, that they're going to be able to bring them to market and scale them. I know you've been involved, Carol, in designing and consulting on these parametric products before. In your experience, what makes a good design of a parametric trigger? The trigger has to be really tightly correlated with what the specific need is. And so in some cases, that's very straightforward. If you're thinking about hurricanes, wind speed's often, you know, a very good indicator of damage. There's really good data on that. And so that's pretty easy. In other cases, it can be harder. I've been working with some various partners in New York City right now, thinking about a parametric product related to extreme rainfall and getting a good measure of extreme rainfall in a dense urban environment is a trickier proposition. And it might require new technology, like something we've been looking at, which is on the ground sensors or coupling different types of technologies together. So there's also places where you're going to have to innovate along with the end user about what that particular trigger design is that will be will be useful. Well, I want to pick up on that New York example because I, I think that's one of the examples of what you talk about in the book as community-based catastrophe insurance. Now, this is something you're sort of on the forefront of. Can you explain what is the concept of community-based catastrophe insurance? So this is an idea that's been popping up a lot lately under different names globally. So one is the community-based catastrophe insurance, and we worked with MMC on a report looking at how that might work. It's also been referred to globally as things like meso-insurance models or aggregator models. And the basic design can take a number of different forms, but the kind of key idea is that there's an institution in between the individual households and the insurance company that's playing some role in providing the insurance. The idea there is that that entity is either purchasing the insurance directly and holding the policy themselves, or they're acting more as a facilitator between the ultimate insureds and the insurance company. And I think a good way to think about that would be to think about something like um, employer-provided healthcare, right? So lots of employers here will essentially either cost share or help facilitate health insurance for their employees, narrow down the option, pick the company, but the employee has an individual contract with the insurance company. The employer doesn't have the contract, but the employer is playing this important um, role in facilitating the coverage. So the idea is to do something like that on a broader scale, whether it's working with local governments, community groups, nonprofits, to help, as we were talking about earlier, close that disaster insurance gap to make sure that more people have that financial protection of insurance. That was some of the thinking behind the pilot we're working on in New York City with the Center for New York City Neighborhoods and the Mayor's Office on Climate and Environmental Justice and Guy Carpenter and other partners. And we're thinking about how housing and recovery nonprofits could access insurance through parametric designs, so parametric risk transfer, in order to help finance programs that they run to help meet the immediate needs of low-income households after a disaster event. So how do we get, again, it's that same question of dollars quickly to people in need to make sure that the disaster doesn't become a sort of tipping point into worse financial conditions because they don't have the resources they need to meet their immediate needs post-disaster. And that's quite a social-focused solution that you mentioned there. And ESG is a topic that's being increasingly spoken about 
both within insurance, but also more broadly. So it would be great to hear, do you have any examples of how insurance can be used to help with these social and environmental goals? So you mentioned earlier conservation and biodiversity. It would be great to hear a bit more about that. I think there's a number of different ways insurers can help engage in what in the book I refer to as, you know, helping create a more nature positive economy. So helping support conservation and restoration efforts, and they can be quite varied. So some can be providing new types of insurance products for things like wetland baking or forestry carbon offsets to help those sort of emerging environmental um, markets thrive and also make sure that they include important protections for the environment as as those are developing. In the book, I talk about other types of new institutional models, like a broker who was established to help conservation groups get the coverages they needed. And they might be very standard coverages, but they were finding that because it's sort of a small and niche market, these conservation groups, insurers didn't have the expertise to really assess those risks. And sometimes when insurers don't have the expertise to really know the ins and outs of a risk, they tend to be very conservative and might price them higher just to protect themselves. But if you're a nonprofit trying to do conservation, every dollar matters and you need to have insurance that's actually priced for the risk. And so this broker was found that in helping educate insurers about the risk, they could get products that met those needs at a much lower price point. So that's another example. I also talk about captive. So Of course, uh, risk transfer and insurance doesn't have to go through insurance companies. Often we might see captives which are like insurance companies, but they only insure their owners or their members. And so this was a captive created for land trusts. So to only provide liability insurance protection to land trusts to help them defend their conservation holdings. So there's a lot of these kind of niche little ways that insurance is actually really an enabler to the type of conservation and restoration activity that really needs to expand to meet our biodiversity goals, for example. And then that's on top of some of the things that might be more obvious, like when investments in nature can also lower risk, like wetlands storing floodwaters, then we could think about price incentives through property insurance to help promote more of those nature-based solutions, for example. And today you've touched on both private and public sector initiatives for tackling disaster resilience. Where do you see the roles of these two different sectors in tackling climate resilience in the future? I think that's a good question and one we're not totally clear on yet. I think we need to better identify the complementary roles of each sector so that both the public and the private sector can be aligned and all pointed in the same direction. So as we were talking about earlier, for example, risk reduction or climate adaptation should be really complementary to insurance. And so how do we get the private sector insurers working closely with the public sector in promoting more investments and adaptation and resilience as we go forward is, is, is sort of one example. I also think when we're talking about using insurance, particularly for some of the social goals we've been talking about or making it more inclusive and better able to help low-income households who might not be able to afford it. We need partnerships there to help with that cost sharing and help with the sort of necessary outreach and engagement with these communities. And so that might be insurers working with nonprofits or working with local community groups. And so I think those types of differentiated roles in in a common direction can sometimes be more impactful. Great. Well, to finish off then, Carolyn, when I got to the end of your book, I saw there was a sort of challenge to the insurance sector in there. You know, climate threats are growing, disasters are becoming more frequent. I mean, what's your view on what insurers who are listening to this podcast should be doing differently? 
I think we've touched on a number of the themes already. I think insurers need to be doing more to support risk reduction and investments in climate adaptation as these risks are only escalating. And that might be trying out new business models to support this, whether it's offering a financial bonus for rebuilding, if that rebuilding is done in a way that promotes resilience or it leads to investments in sort of decarbonization, which is the ultimate risk reduction tool, right, for climate disasters. And I think it also involves insurers being more vocal when it comes to climate policy, both on the adaptation and the climate abatement side, and really being strong political supporters of government's role in increasing resilience and in adopting policies to help more quickly lower our emissions. Great. Well, thank you so much, Carolyn, for coming on the podcast. And I think anyone who's listening should take a look at this book because I think it's a good chance to see about some of the latest innovations in these types of insurance and see if there's an opportunity for them to get involved. Thanks so much for having me on today. It was great to talk with both of you. 